Hello everyone and welcome to Green Show Speaker, where we talk careers in international relations with practitioners. I'm Ricardo Gon, one of the co-editors, and I'll be your host for today. We have a special guest today. Her name is Natalie Tocci, and just to make a brief introduction of her career, uh, she's a politologist, uh, she graduated in Oxford in political science, and she obtained a master and a PhD at LSE International Relations. And during her career, so currently she is the directress of the Institute of International Affairs in Rome, but she also worked for the European University Institute, the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels, Transatlantic Academy in Washington, and as a more practical field job, she was a counselor of the European Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, she was counselor for the international strategies of uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Federica Mogherini, as well as special advisor for, uh, to Mogherini and Borrell for security policies and foreign affairs in the European Union. She is currently also a columnist for the Italian newspaper La Stampa, and she has been in the board of directors of Edison SPA, an Italian energy company. And since 2020, in, uh, she's in the board of directors of ENI as a non-executive independent manager. So after this uh, brief introduction, I want to uh, bring the attention also to our uh, other guest today, our lovely Benedetta Morari, uh, who we thought to, uh, it would be a great idea to bring her in today since she is studying uh, LSE in the European Institute, and she's doing a PhD in uh, the same topics that Professor Tocci uh, treats. So uh, just to give a brief introduction to Benedetta as well, she graduated in Science Po in uh, international relations and obtained two masters in international relations at Cambridge and the College of Europe in Bruges. So we're going to um, discuss a lot of topics today and Benedetta is serving as our uh, moderator. So if you want to introduce our topics and go through the first questions. Uh, thank you very much, Ricardo, for your introduction. And thank you very much to Professor Natalie Tocci for being with us uh, today. Uh, I'm honored to be here and especially honored to have a conversation with you because I find your academic and professional path unique and because of that incredibly fascinating and has been incredibly inspiring for me in, in my academic career thus far. Uh, but I also think it, will, it, it can be of great inspiration for other LSE students as well. Probably one of the reasons why LSE students can find your your path so interesting is that we all have something in common, which is LSE. Uh, so maybe could you tell us a bit what ties you to LSE? I mean, a lot actually ties me to LSE, which is actually why I'm so delighted to, to do this podcast. Um, I actually spent quite a bit of my time at LSE because I both did a master's there and a PhD. So I, I, my first degree was, was in Oxford and then I moved on to LSE. I did development studies there, um, which is really a time uh, in which I opened up, you know, whereas during my first degree, I was very Europe focused. Um, at my time at LSE, I really started doing a lot more work uh, on particularly actually the Middle East. Uh, back in those days, there was Fred Halliday, who, uh, who was still alive, and obviously he was teaching LSE, who was a great source uh, of inspiration. Um, and then 
um, what happened was I, for, for a year I left Odyssey, right? So I went to Brussels and I started working in a think tank and that was really the time in which I wasn't sure whether I wanted to pursue an academic career uh, or not because I was very drawn to, to policy work. And, and actually what got me back to LSE was, was the fact that um, amongst the people that I met there during my master's, but then of course I continued when I started my, my PhD st uh, studies, um, was William Wallace, Lord Wallace. And, um, and, and William was really someone, is really someone, um, who, unlike at times, you know, some academics that's kind of looked down on policy work, um, William obviously being both uh, a professor at LSE, but also being a politician, uh, being a member of the House of Lords, uh, and obviously being uh, very deeply involved in, in policy work, um, he didn't look at this as being a problem. He didn't look at these two things as, you know, academia and, and policy work as being incompatible, but really looked at these two things uh, as being sort of closely, closely connected. Um, but at the same time, and perhaps we'll get into this during the course of the conversation, um, he was also very clear in terms of pointing out the importance of understanding what that relationship is. Uh, and just perhaps to begin with, with an anecdote, which has to do with my, uh, with my PhD, um, I was, you know, more or less at the stage you're, you're at in your, in your PhD studies, you know, so I was a few months uh, into this, and I had already worked for a year at the Centre for European Policy Studies in, in Brussels, and when I was in Brussels, I really got very much involved in the Cyprus question, which turned out to be the core, basically, uh, topic of um, uh, of my PhD. Anyway, so I come back to LSC, you know, after a work in, after a year's work in, uh, in, in, in Brussels. Um, and, you know, as, as you know better than I do, you go through various iterations of coming up with a research question and an outline and all the rest of it. And I remember in one of those meetings, <laughs> uh, William basically saying to me, Natalie, I don't think you want to study the Cyprus question. I think you want to solve the Cyprus question. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, well, yeah, that's exactly what I have to do. Um, and, and so, you know, he really helped me to, in a sense, change perspective and therefore kind of, you know, step back into the shoes of the academic. But then at the same time, actually, it enabled me to pursue that academic perspective in a way that informed policy. And in fact, my PhD did, you know, back, as I said, you know, sort of, it was on the Cyprus question we're talking about in this, I mean, I'm going to basically reveal how old I am. Um, but this was kind of early 2000s. And uh, back in those days, it was a very optimistic moment in, uh, in the Cyprus question, the only, I think, real moment in which it looked like um, the parties were close to uh, a solution mediated by the United Nations. Um, and of course, it was also the time in which Cyprus was approaching its membership 
uh, of the European Union. And a big debate at the time was to what extent its membership would have uh, helped or hindered uh, the resolution of, uh, of the problem. And actually, my thesis was that it would have hindered it. And, and unfortunately, I was, I was right on this one. However, my thesis was also about the fact that potentially it could have helped. Uh, and actually, there were all sorts of interesting federal models within the European Union. I was very, uh, very much looking at the case of Belgium, because, of course, that's also where I had lived uh, in my time in, in Brussels. Um, and that there were you know, federal models like the Belgian one, where lessons could be drawn and applied to the case of Cyprus. And actually, the Belgian model made its way. I mean, I was in conversation with the UN people working uh, on Cyprus, and in particular with the special envoy back in those days, it was Alvaro de Soto, uh, special envoy uh, of the Secretary General, um, Kofi Annan, of course, uh, at the time. And the Belgian model made it into the Annan plan. Um, for Cyprus. So it's simply a kind of little anecdote about the fact that what I was doing back in the days LSE was um, was really the beginning of what, you know, turned out to be basically the rest of my career. This is too bad this is not a PhD interview because I have at least four <laughs> follow-up questions on, on my PhD thesis. But I'm going to try to make it interesting, not just for myself, but for everyone listening. And... I think what you said about bringing theory and practice together is probably one of the things that make your profile so unique and so interesting. And it's also quite rare to find your kind of profile within in Europe. Well, in the United States, this kind of concept of the revolving door where people who work in government go back to work for think tanks or academic institutions and vice versa is quite common um, if we can think about um, figures like Henry Kissinger or even more recently Anne-Marie Slaughter or Condoleezza Rice. We can see it's quite common and accepted in Italy in uh, Italy and Europe. Uh, it's quite um, the opposite. And it almost feels that theory and practice inhabit different universes. So I wanted to ask you next, how have you... So kind of like what happened after in your career and how you kept managing, conjugating these two different souls in, into one career? Firstly, I think, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, in, in, in Europe, it's really, uh, sadly, I would say, it's really quite rare. And it does indeed kind of, you know, beg the question as to why, you know, why is it that it's so much easier in the United States? I think obviously, this has to do with political culture. It has to do with the fact that uh, institutions are relatively newer, so to speak, in the US and Europe. You know, we tend to be quite stratified, dare I say, fossilized in many ways. Um, so things, you know, institutions tend to be far more rigid and there tends to be a far stronger sort of corporativist sort of structure and culture in Europe, which is, it's very difficult to break these, these silos. I have always tried to straddle these different worlds, um, essentially because I never really felt comfortable uh, fully um, sort of, you know, sitting into one box. Um, as I said, you know, yes, I've always been drawn to academia, but to be honest with you, what drives me to study what I study, uh, academically speaking, is because of a policy interest. Uh, I think if it had been 
purely an academic interest, I probably would have carried on whatever studying philosophy as I had started during uh, during my my first degree. Uh, and so it was always a policy interest, a, a sort of intellectual interest, which had a policy kind of heart, in a sense, beating heart to it. Um, in a sense, as often is the case, you know, sort of things then happen by, by chance, right? Uh, and so, indeed, you know, I continued my PhD. Uh, I did my PhD, but I did it with a supervisor, William Wallace, that I was citing earlier, um, that was, you know, always very, sort of, you know, very involved in, in policy work. Uh, and that also meant that he didn't look at um, the fact that I, throughout my PhD, I actually carried on working for a think tank. He didn't kind of look at it as some, something dirty and, and kind of ugly, right? As perhaps some purer, so to speak, academics may, may think, think of think tank work. So I actually carried on doing these two things at the same time. Uh, I actually found that in my PhD experience, it was extremely useful uh, because, you know, sort of introducing yourself, say if you're asking for an interview, uh, you know, one thing is introducing yourself as, quote unquote, only a PhD student. One thing is if you introduce yourself also as a fellow here or, a, you know, it, it basically creates an interest, you know, rather than the interviewer, um, sorry, the interviewee, um, you know, rather than accepting because, you know, a student asks you to talk and you kind of say yes, because, you know, it'd be pretty nasty to say no, frankly speaking. Um, but if I think that there's an interest for me talking to you because whatever, you work somewhere else, then it's a different dynamic to the conversation. And, and, you know, interviews normally, if they're good interviews, are not interviews, they're conversations in many ways, right? Uh, and so there's uh, an interaction which I think helps if you also have a foot somewhere else. So I would say that in terms of uh, my academic work, that policy angle actually enriched uh, in many ways, what, what I was doing. But as I said, you know, I did feel so, which also meant that once I finished my PhD, I did, I went to Florence, I did a postdoc there, and then I did another postdoc there. So I kind of did as many postdocs as I possibly could. And I probably could have, if I could have done a third postdoc, I would have done that uh, as well. Um, however, I kept on doing policy work throughout. So I kept on working in, uh, in, in a think tank throughout. So first at the Center for European Policy Studies, and then uh, I started cooperating actually with the institute that I now direct uh, here in Rome, the Institute for International Affairs. And this kind of went on for a few years. I then started getting very restless again. So I spent some time in the US um, out, you know, you were mentioning it earlier, the Transatlantic Academy in Washington, which was connected to another think tank, the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And then basically what happened, and as I said, you know, often what happens in life is, is a coincidence, um, is that someone that I knew not particularly well, frankly speaking, and her name is Federica Mogherini, um, was appointed foreign minister. As I said, I didn't actually know her very well. I mean, she was a member of my institute, meaning that she would turn up, she was uh, an Italian uh, MP uh, at the time, which meant that she would come now and then to our conferences or our seminars. Um, and, and when she was then appointed as, as, as foreign minister, 
Um, she actually asked me, I mean, she knew me a little bit, not very much, but she asked me to um, if I could go and, and help her out when she was Italian foreign minister. And then only after a few months, she was appointed high representative, and then I kind of followed her there. However, and this is where we come back to the academic side of it, I asked myself, you know, what could I usefully do? Uh, and, and to be honest, you know, if you're someone that works in the institutions, if you're in the day-to-day -day kind of meat grinder of policy work, you will always know more. What I mean by know is know more in terms of empirical detail, uh, facts, uh, institutional processes. I mean, the value added of being in the box is that. And it was not mine, right? My value added was that of being out of the box, um, which basically meant, um, you know, contributing to, in a sense, you can define it more strategic work, right? I mean, the kind of work that requires you to have a foot in and a foot out, because you need to have a foot in to understand uh, how the process works. But then if you're only in, you don't have that you know, more sort of more long-term and therefore more strategic uh, view of, of where we are and especially where we could be going. And so we discussed the idea of working on a new strategy. She liked the idea. And that's basically how my period uh, that was most involved, I mean, you know, that was really a time in which the academic side kind of disappeared a little bit and I was very fall on to the policy work and that basically lasted for about you know sort of five years or so I then continued with Morel but my involvement um, reduced um, and that was then the time in which I kind of tilted back towards academia again um, and so I don't know what I'll do in future but I really struggle to see myself as fitting into one box because I think it simply doesn't reflect who I am basically. It's very interesting that you use this expression out of the box because um, while of, it, it is undoubtedly something that gives you a value, an added value in what you can bring, it also means that there was no pre-made path for you and you had to forge your own path. So I would be kind of interesting to also hear what were the main obstacles that you faced? Like, once you were in a room negotiating with career diplomats, how were you seen by being this out-of-the-box academic person? But also how did academia how did academia see you as as this more think tank policy person? Um so I'm interested in the obstacles and maybe kind of bring it back uh to to what you said earlier, which is what can this tell us about the broader relationship between theory and practice and um, whether and why it is important to bridge this gap, especially for the future of EU foreign policy. So, ha, uh, how, how was I seen? Um, I guess it made many people feel uncomfortable. It makes many people feel uncomfortable um, because, you know, if you are... Um, sitting comfortably in one category, 
then, you know, sort of I speak to you, I put, you know, I kind of I put you in that box. I know who you are. I know what to expect. If you don't belong to any particular box or a bit to one, a bit to the other, um, it creates uncertainty. And people normally don't like uncertainty. Um, and so it creates discomfort. So I would say that in general, and this applies both to academics vis-a-vis -vis practitioners and the other way around, um, they know how to interact with one another when you know, when it's clear where each stands, when it's something in between, it creates discomfort. Now, I personally think that discomfort is actually a source of creativity. Yeah, I mean, it is when we feel uncomfortable uh, that kind of good things happen, precisely because we feel uncomfortable. So I'm a big fan of being uncomfortable and making others feel uncomfortable. So I would say that in general, um, you know, even at times in which and I'm going to use a strong word, I was even viewed as a threat. I think that the outcome of it was actually a positive one. Why do I use such a strong word, threat? Because in many ways, um, I think there were at least three sets of things that I, I wasn't viewed as a threat in, in academia. Most I may have been viewed as not a serious academic, right? But not, not as a threat, right? Um, whereas in the other sense, there was a threatening element to it because, of course, I was empowered um, to carry out uh, an important piece of policy work. And, and because I didn't belong to the machine, I wasn't controllable by the machine. And all of a sudden, not only is there this person that comes from outside the institutions and therefore, you know, does not belong to a particular hierarchy, is not... Um, you know, does not need to respond to someone up, you know, the, the value chain, so to speak. Um, and so, by definition, not controllable. I mean, the only person I had above my head was political, right? Uh, it was not, you know, sort of the high representative is a political appointee. So she was not basically, in a sense, she was at the head uh, of an institution, but she was not of that institution, right? Um, so on the one hand, that in and of itself was threatening. And then, of course, you have two ele further elements to this. Uh, firstly, that I was relatively young. I, I wasn't actually that young, frankly speaking, huh? because I was, what, in my late 30s, early 40s. So I was not really young. Um, but, it, you know, it's all relative in life. And so I was considered young. And, of course, the youth element um, is perceived as such, especially when it's coupled with another element, which is gender. <laughs> so all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, there is this young woman <laughs> that doesn't work in the institutions that is responsible for this piece of work. And, you know, old men from within the institutions definitely viewed me as threatening. And um, this is why I kind of use this, this term. Um, in, you know, I, how, how do you deal with it? I think you deal it with, um, with humour. Um, you don't take it too seriously. You do what you're supposed to do. I mean, you know, convinced that in the end, kind of the outcome is what's going to matter. Um, I think you also use it as a source of strength in the sense that um, 
It enabled me, for instance, in the case of the EU Global Strategy, to push for a process that was rather unconventional uh, because I didn't, you know, sort of negotiate letter by letter, comma by comma, uh, a document, but I kind of concocted, we concocted a rather unconventional process. And because, in a sense, I wasn't from the machine, in a way, it actually made it easier to do this rather than, than harder. So I think, you know, and it goes back to the point I was saying about being uncomfortable. Um, you know, in in that situation of, of discomfort, there are there, there's value that can be reaped, and so you reap it. <laughs> um, so you know, I think there's that side of it. And then coming to your question about um, you know, sort of theory and practice, or rather academia and practice, and how is it that they they really can generate value for, for one another. I would say that, um, well, firstly, I think it's important to highlight where is it that they can't generate value. So you're not going to get from a policy document or for, from a policy conversation a conceptual framework, an analytical framework that is going to, you know, sort of structure your PhD thesis. Now, that's not going to happen. Right. What you are going to get is that nitty gritty empirical and institutional detail that is absolutely fundamental to, uh, as an academic, develop a concept. Uh, I mean, unless you're a theorist, full stop, in which case maybe what I'm saying is less relevant. But if you're not a theorist, full, full stop, um, then actually, you know, that level of, of detail that you can only get from the policymaker um, can really inform your, your academic work. How can you as an academic um, inform and improve policy work is by providing that analytical framing. You know, if you are a policymaker and you're asked to write a strategy, again, to go back to the same example, what you will end up doing, or you say, for example, not a strategy, you have to write a speech for your, your boss, yeah? I mean, your whatever, foreign minister, high representative, whoever it is. Normally, these speeches are shopping lists. Uh, it's a list about things that are important or things that have been done or things that will be done. There is no story. Um, there's no story to that speech, right? That The story is provided by someone that has a more academic framing. It's providing that analytical lens that, um, that creates basically a story that outlives the we, the or outlives the mum. Um, that is something that you can then go back to because it provides a broader guidance, basically. So I think, you know, the, the academic is not going to help, I think, uh, the policymaker by providing specific recommendations. I think those recommendations are totally overrated um, because you read in terms of recommendations like do X, Y, and Z, very rarely is an academic going to know exactly where you are in the policy process, what is feasible, what is not, what are the cracks, basically, that you can exploit to try and widen them further. Um, you really need to, go, I mean, again, going back to boxes, you need to be in the box to know that. But you can provide that framework that creates the realm, in a sense, of the possible or of the desirable, right? Um, and so that I think that framing element is probably the most important. I was like, my main question is throughout your career, 
did you notice as you mentioned the threat also for being a woman in the concept of foreign policies and did you notice a sort of stigma that is still present and what did you notice there was a change throughout your career or it is still a big stigma so i think it's important to highlight that there there has been a massive change um and i cannot emphasize this enough you know i remember my very first times for instance going to things like the munich security conference in which there would just be only men mainly in uniforms and you would just be elbowed the whole time i mean they literally wouldn't see you right i mean it was it was physical yeah i mean they literally wouldn't see you physically i mean you know elbowing you all over the place you go to places like the Munich Security Conference, um, which, you know, now it comes to mind because, um, you know, as we speak, I mean, uh, I, I, will, I will be there in a couple of days. Um, but but now the, the picture has dramatically changed. Now, it's partly because there are more women, uh, more women in politics, more women in institutions, more women in companies, more women in civil society, more women in the media. It's also because of a changing concept of security. So security not just being military security, but being much, you know, far more broadly construed. And so to the extent to which you have the climate piece of the equation, you know, the, yeah, the, the energy piece of the equation, the disinformation piece, I mean, these tend to be areas where um, women are also more involved, which is not to say that they're not involved in the hard military stuff. They are, and they and they should. But I think there's been both this expanding concept of security, which has also created a more conducive, basically, uh, environment, foreign policy environment, where women are more involved. Is there still a long way to go? Yes, there's obviously still a very, very, very long way to go. Um, and I think that in order to accelerate this change further, um, aspects of mentoring and network, this is something that didn't really exist actually 20 years ago, to be honest, much. But I think now there, there is a lot more of this, and I think it's really fantastically important um, for women and not just women uh, to kind of, you know, share notes and help one another uh, in, you know, still breaking what are, you know, in many areas still sort of glass ceilings that are, uh, are difficult to break through. We will be back with our guest after a short break. It's so fascinating to me to see how so many of these things just tie back together. This, this idea that by being a young woman that didn't necessarily fit in the box that allowed you to be uncomfortable, but also be creative. And because of that, maybe academic background, but also because of that creativity, you were put in a position to... to to write a story for the EU, but also to allow the EU to write its story globally. And that is a bit what the EU global strategy is. Uh, just for context for who's listening to us, the EU st global strategy was published uh, and signed in 2016 and represents the major strategic update and major strategic document of the EU. And that follows the European security strategy that came in 2003. 
And so it was a document that was badly needed because the EU needed to kind of look itself in the mirror and decided what it was and where it wanted to go because the European security strategy didn't hold anymore. The It thought that we were, that the EU was in, in a moment that was ever so secure and prosperous while the EU global strategy was written at the moment uh, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring heightened confrontation between the U.S. and China, uh, U.S. pivot to Asia, and also the escalation in hybrid threats and confrontation between um, in Ukraine by, by Russia. So kind of the work you have done was also kind of allowed you to reimagine itself and decided where it wanted to go from now on. And that required... Uh, as you said before, uh, strategic work and kind of this work of foresight and horizon scanning where you take what's happening and you kind of try to understand what are the main challenges that um, are that the EU will face. And and I think it's fascinating to read back the EU global strategy because now it was written eight years ago and see how many of these threats are still are still relevant. Let's think only, for example, about terrorism, energy insecurity, hybrid threats, uh, migrate, uh, disinformation, not migration, sorry. Um, and my question is, the security strategy sees this and these threats and states that the EU was in a moment of existential crisis. And eight years later, it seems that this movement of existential crisis is only further escalated. Um, which challenges would now guide you in rewriting a global strategy if you were to write it today? That was a very good question. I mean, firstly, what I would say is that um, some things have not changed uh, in the sense that they're still there. And they're just simply a lot, lot worse. Um, but some things have dramatically changed. So, for instance, um, what has dramatically changed is that the concepts underpinning European security um, is, is very different. What I mean by this is that if you take the 2003 European security strategy, so that was liberal international order, this idea of a Europe that expands its goodness in the world, um, in all sorts of directions, of course, including Russia as one of its concentric circles, of course, a very, very loose one, but that was the worldview, right, that was it. If you then go to 2016, the global strategy, of course, the concept already is very different. However, it is a concept of Europe and Russia as being two things that are very clearly different and, in fact, diverging. Uh, and hence sanctions and all the rest of it. However, the concept was that a European security order had to somehow also include a component of what we called back then selective engagement. So this idea that these two different and diverging things um, had to somehow see the very, very little that they still had quote-unquote, in common on issues like whatever, negotiating Iran's nuclear deal, as opposed to working together on the energy transition, uh, as opposed to, you know, cooperating in the far north, for, for instance. Now, that's kind of out. 
Uh, and so in a sense, today we have the European security order, which um, is premised on the idea of building that order in protection from Russia. Um, so it's not an order built with Russia, it's an order in a sense built against Russia. Uh, and so that is, I think, conceptually, I mean, not just empirically, there's been a war, yes, obviously there's been a war, um, but conceptually, I think, is something that is quite different. There are other elements which, as I said, you know, in a sense have not dramatically changed. You know, resilience was a concept which was highlighted in the global strategy, you know, post-pandemic, post-war in Ukraine, you know, post now, you know, Red Sea, far more important now than it was back then. You know, perhaps back then we didn't quite understand all the different potential meanings of resilience, but the concept itself is, is still valid. Um, I think probably an, another part which is, again, very different, would, would be conceptually very different now than it was back then, is, is the idea of multilateralism. And here, maybe I'm slightly less certain, but I think, you know, back then there was still this sense of, yes, the world is becoming multipolar, the world is already multipolar, uh, and one needs to find ways of strengthening multilateralism uh, on the basis of a different distribution of power, basically. Um, I would say that now there is this increasing reality that whether it's multi or non-polar, I don't know, but whatever distribution of power there is, there is an increasing reality of multi-orders, uh, which is something which in the academic literature is discussed, yeah, but it wasn't really part of the policy debate back then. It was even part of the academic really debate back then. But I think that is something, a concept that is, in a sense, relevant now, and it, it, it changes quite fundamentally how the EU does go about or doesn't go about multilateralism. Another bit which would not have changed, it's just, you know, the same thing on steroids is European defence. Um, you know, already back then there was this idea of the EU becoming more responsible, strategically autonomous. Now we've gone through the kind of Biden years of not talking about strategic autonomy, but hey, now that, you know, there's the sort of scare of a Trump comeback, we talk about European autonomy uh, once again. So it's the same on steroids, right? So some concepts are more of that, you know, more of the same, much more of the same because of two wars and all the rest of it. But some, I think, are conceptually different. Now, if the question then becomes, so does it mean that the EU should now write a new strategy? Um, I think eventually, yes, it must. Uh, I think that I probably wouldn't put this as one of my priorities now. I mean, not mine personally, but you know, if you know, if, if I was the European Union, if any such thing uh, exists. Um, simply because now we are in the midst of war. And in the midst of war, you need to do things. We don't have, you know, sort of, especially if you're the European Union, I mean, you know this better than I do, given that you're writing a PhD on this, but um, it takes a long time to get to agreements and negotiate things. And, uh, and so do you really want to spend that political and institutional capital on writing a document uh, when the house is burning, right? Um, which doesn't mean to say that the document is not useful, uh, but, you know, you need to make choices. And I'm not sure that now is the time, basically, simply because of everything happening around us. So 
if you wouldn't rewrite a document, maybe this is a bit of a provocative question, but, uh, but one of the big elements of the um, global strategy in 2016 was this idea of principle pragmatism. So the, uh, this idea that they use values, principles, and interests should and can go hand in hand. Do you think that this still applies in the current state of international affairs? I think it should apply. Um, now, let me add the word of caution there. Um, I'm a big fan of the word pragmatism in general. However, I think that it is absolutely awful the way in which this word is being used and abused these days, because it's actually being used often not to mean pragmatism, but to mean opportunism and cynicism and all sorts of other pretty nasty things. Uh, so, you know, if one takes what that concept should have meant, uh, which is you look at the world for what it is, not for the way in which you would like it to be. Pragmatism, in a sense, is more synonymous with having a realistic, uh, not a realist, but a realistic kind of view of the world. But then you approach that world, which can be, you know, very, you know, ugly, um, driven by your, your principles. So, you know, if the question is, should that still apply? I think, yes, it still should apply. Um, in the way in which it's often been distorted, here in, you know, I'm sitting in Rome, the Italian prime minister constantly uses the word pragmatic. And she doesn't mean pragmatic at all. <laughs> she means basically pretty cynical and opportunistic. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, it, it makes my hair kind of, you know, stand when I hear it. Um, so I don't like, you know, so I, I don't like pragmatism anymore, but, you know, not for, not for what pragmatism really should be about, but for how it's basically been abused. So um, I want to be mindful of your time and I, and I see the clock is ticking. So maybe I wanted to have a conclusive question to our conversation, maybe trying to bridge a bit the topic that we discussed today. Um, we are in, as a global strategy says, uh, an ever more connected, contested and complex world and skills to approach this complexity are badly needed. What do you think are the skills that LSE provided you with that are more uh, are the most useful, especially uh, for our students? And maybe what is your advice in this sense for students listening to us that are trying to maybe ask themselves how to make the world a little better or just to enter in, in the field of foreign policy and diplomacy? So I would say that um, I'm not sure that they're really skills, but, um, you know, kind of qualities or things to work on. Uh, I would say that there's um, definitely there's the whole point about listening, listening, empathy, putting yourselves in someone else's shoes. We no longer live in a world in which, I mean, you know, beyond the fact that it's kind of good to do, right? I mean, but we no longer live in a world in which we call the shots. Uh, and so we need to have a far more granular understanding of what others want, what others will do, because it's what others will do that will largely shape how things go. 
And so to the extent to which we want to shape how things go, we need to understand it, not simply for normative reasons, yeah, but for very pragmatic <laughs> kind of reasons. And then the, I, I think, you know, given how fast moving everything is, um, I think sort of somehow learning to be versatile, sort of, you know, when things pop up, right, um, embracing them, whatever, you know, now AI, you know, sort of we should all have a sense of how to use AI in our research work, in our policy work, you know, sort of embracing change because change is happening at such a pace that you cannot remain in your comfort zone, again, using going back to, to, to discomfort, right? Um, so I would say kind of being versatile, embracing change, empathy and listening would probably be sort of four or five of my, my keywords. And maybe just to conclude our last thing, do you have any maybe recent book or article that you would suggest to to start doing this work to to listen and trying to be more learn how to be more empathetic and and understand how the world works well I'm sure it's a, a book about this but it's a very uh i mean given that empathy is a very um female uh characteristic a wonderful book that i've just finished actually by a georgian author the book is for the, uh, the uh, i read it in italian the chicken manca so maybe i mean i should look it up but the missing light uh and it's a wonderful story um of the story of these four women uh four friends uh and it's uh in the context of uh georgia in the period in between the end of the soviet union and the beginning of um of, of, of you know sort of independence um a very very touching book which is really a lot about putting yourself in the other's shoes, understanding how others felt uh, and, and developing characteristics, which in many ways are very female, which of course does not mean to say that men <laughs> don't have them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, The Missing Life, but again, you know, I, I may be wrong with the English translation because I read it in Italian. Well, we'll definitely add that to the resources of the podcast. Uh, and maybe you should come back to talk about feminist foreign policy next time. Well, thank you very much to Professor Natalie Tocci for being with us today. And thank you to Dr. Morari as well. And have a great day, everybody, and see you in next episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>